Angel Shang. And I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 17th, 2020. Coming up, an interview with Bob Frank, author of Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. This book explains how we could redirect trillions of dollars annually in support of carbon-free energy sources, all without requiring painful sacrifices from anyone. We begin with a look at some of the recent news about the coronavirus. Seems like everywhere you go, you hear about the coronavirus pandemic. It's rapid spread, the national emergencies, travel bans, and shortage of test kits and respirators. But what about treatments? Where's the science? What about vaccines? Is there anything in the pipeline? Some of us are hoping to hang on until one of those comes to market. It turns out there is a lot of development. For the scientists working on developing a drug or vaccine, the coronavirus, this coronavirus, is not their first rodeo. Several coronaviruses already circulate worldwide and are still infecting humans, and the drugs developed to treat those past illnesses show some promise for the current coronavirus, or they're at least a good starting point. The past coronaviruses were actually much more serious, meaning they had higher mortalities, but did not spread nearly as easily. For instance, the SARS pandemic in 2002 is caused by another coronavirus. The latest pandemic, the respiratory disease that we're calling COVID-19, is caused by another coronavirus called SARS coronavirus 2. Not surprisingly, it's closely related to the SARS coronavirus from the early 2000s. Okay, and so just as a reminder, SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. So both the SARS from 2002 and the corona pandemic now are both from coronaviruses, and we're calling them both SARS, except this one is SARS-CoVid-2. Exactly, and the current pandemic... The disease is called COVID-19, and the virus is now called SARS-CoV-2. COV-2. Okay, COV-2. SARS-CoV-2. Now, what about MERS? Because I know that is also a coronavirus. What does MERS stand for? MERS, M-E-R-S, stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and it's also a coronavirus. This was first identified in Saudi Arabia in 2012. The current coronavirus, now called SARS coronavirus 2, as we said, causes a respiratory disease called COVID-19 with currently more than 90,000 confirmed cases and over 3,000 deaths. The new virus has been named SARS coronavirus 2 and has been transmitted from animals to humans. Oh, yeah. I know about this. The bat, these bat viruses that are so deadly... So MERS and SARS started there. SARS was originally in bats and then moved to the Asian palm civet and finally transmitted to humans. MERS was transmitted to humans via camels. This latest respiratory disease caused by the virus technically termed SARS-CoV-2 attacks the lower respiratory system where it can cause viral pneumonia. But the virus can also get into a number of other systems, like the gastrointestinal system, the heart, kidney, liver, and central nervous system, and 
in really serious cases, it can lead to multiple organ failures. And because people with pre-existing conditions and the elderly have weaker immune system, these other systems may be more susceptible in them. The SARS coronavirus, too, is closely related to the first SARS coronavirus, as we said. And there are no vaccines for either of the two earlier viruses, although researchers at Baylor School of Tropical Medicine did develop one, but it was never um, distributed. It currently needs funding to be further refined and distributed. There are also some drugs developed for the first SARS, as well as some other viral diseases that show promise against COVID-19. In a review paper published last week in the Central Science Journal of the American Chemical Society, the authors provided an overview of potential therapeutic agents and vaccines for the virus, with an emphasis on patents that stemmed from the 2002 SARS virus outbreak and the 2012 MERS virus. Okay, but how do those drugs that were developed against the previous outbreaks, how can they help against this one? How does that work? Well, all three coronaviruses share some structures and mechanisms of actions because they belong to the same family of viruses. As is the case for all viruses, SARS-CoV-2 has to get into your respiratory system cells somehow. And it does this by attaching to a protein that's found on the surface of those cells. Turns out that the piece of the virus that attaches here is much stickier in the new virus than in either of the previous coronaviruses. This means that it hangs on and inserts its genetic material much more efficiently. This unwelcome feature makes the new disease much more likely to infect you once you're exposed. Okay, and so what are we talking about when when you say uh, the genetic material of this virus? Well, viruses don't have chromosomes as we know them, and they have just a few genes on one small molecule. The genetic material of these coronaviruses is something called RNA. It's very similar to but simpler in structure than DNA. Single strand. Exactly. <laughs> yes, you've been doing your homework, Angel. The AIDS virus also uses RNA as its genetic material, meaning there's a long history of research into treatments that can target this unique viral pathway. Based on these so-called targets in the virus life cycle, the authors of the ACS paper listed over 100 patents for potential treatments. More significantly, there are many drugs that have been developed to treat prior coronaviruses and other viral diseases that can be repurposed for treating COVID-19. And this repurposing is really significant because it means that drugs have already gone through safety testing and don't have to go through that again. That's a really time-consuming process. Key, yes, yeah. absolutely. And over the last few months since the new virus first appeared in China, there's been an exponential growth in journal articles describing the symptoms, treatments, and associated research. The scientific community is working really hard to develop new approaches. The good news here is that there's a lot of information from previous coronavirus outbreaks that can be used in the fight against COVID-19. Okay, so they're not starting with a blank slate. Exactly. Okay. Now, what about a coronavirus vaccine? Because um, public and private researchers around the world, I know they have been working to develop vaccines to combat this virus. So what about that? Well... I heard yesterday that a phase one trial, that's testing for safety in healthy volunteers and not for clinical treatment. I heard that it just started in 
Washington, D.C. for a COVID-19 vaccine. And Kaiser Permanente Washington Research Institute in Seattle also began one of these first-stage studies. This vaccine candidate was developed by the NIH and Massachusetts-based biotechnology company Modena Incorporated. There's no chance participants could get infected from the shots because they don't contain the coronavirus itself. Dozens of research groups around the world are racing to create a vaccine against COVID-19. And another candidate made by Inovio Pharmaceuticals is expected to begin its own safety study in the U.S., China, and South Korea next month. Okay, so what does um, getting a vaccine to market really mean? And is this why, I guess my question is, is this why the World Health Organization and others say it could take a year or longer for a vaccine to become available? Because Kaiser started in, um, it's cl- it started injecting or delivering a vaccine trial person yesterday for the for the first time. Yeah, these these so-called phase one safety trials aren't designed to test how well the vaccine protects people against the illness. They're designed to make sure they don't make healthy volunteers sick. So they solicit healthy volunteers who then get the the vaccine, and then they get exposed to the virus. So it is a little scary because some previous vaccines, in fact, sensitized people to the earlier SARS viruses, meaning they got sicker instead of being protected. Okay, that's not good. Well, probably to prevent that problem, China is currently using five different approaches to develop the vaccine to curb the spread of the virus. So I see they are including using inactivated coronavirus to produce a vaccine or genetic engineering to mass produce proteins that could act as antigens for the novel coronavirus or modifying existing vaccines for influenza. Right. And... It's kind of a crapshoot. We never know how the immune system will react to a specific vaccine until it goes through those phase one safety trials. But currently, there are no drugs that are specifically targeted towards the new SARS coronavirus. Now, as we just heard, there are some that have been developed for other viral diseases that may be effective in treating COVID-19. Potential treatment would be remdesivir. So remdesivir, uh, let's call it, it's called RDV, is one of these drugs. It has a broad spectrum of antiviral activities against RNA viruses, including SARS-CoV, the first one, and Middle East or MERS, uh, respiratory syndrome, MERS-CoV. RDV blocks the construction of new viral genetic material. So RDV was originally developed, believe it or not, for the treatment of Ebola virus disease and was shown to be safe in clinical trials for that purpose. Now, Ebola is not a coronavirus, but it is an RNA virus. So in animal testing, it was recently shown that RDV could block the ability of the MERS virus to replicate. It does this because it is a lookalike to one of the building blocks of the viral RNA. So when RNA is put into, so when RDV is put into the RNA instead of the real RNA, the building block, the building stops and viral replication fails. If additional animal testing shows RDV to be effective against the SARS-CoV-2 that causes the SNU disease, this drug could be used immediately as it's already gone through the safety tests. 
So you can see how developing and distributing drugs takes a long time, and that includes the vaccine, because there's so many levels of testing just to make sure they're safe. We don't want people getting sicker because of potential therapies. Professor Bob Frank, a behavioral economist at Cornell University, recently released an interesting book describing how peer pressure could help us get out of this climate crisis. So some of you may have heard excerpts from our interview last week and maybe even gotten the book as a thank you for pledging. The book is called Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. Dr. Frank has developed some novel strategies relying on peer pressure to get people to change their actions so as to reduce carbon emissions and climate change. He also details many prior and successful examples of this type of peer pressure. Welcome to the show, Professor Robert Frank. And you've just come out with a a really fascinating book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work, Um, an introduction to this amazing science that I love called behavioral contagion. And so maybe you can define that for us and then talk about your specific interest of how to use behavioral modification to adjust people's behavior in the realm of climate change and carbon emissions. Uh, first, thanks, Beth, for having me on the show. Uh, I'm glad to do that. The The psychologists really have the, the basic premise of the book uh, captured very uh succinctly when they say it's the situation, not the person. What they mean by that is is that when we see somebody do something and, and we try to explain why she did it, uh, our impulse is to look to traits of character and personality. What kind of a person would do such a thing? Uh, their point is that that's the wrong path, that the far more fruitful way to think about why people do what they do is to examine the social circumstances that surround them when they made their choice about what to do. Uh, Peer pressure is a common term for it. I don't like that term, even though it's in the subtitle of my book. It has such a negative connotation. Uh, But when my editor proposed that we use uh, as a subtitle, putting peer pressure to work, uh, I thought that had a kind of a a man bites dog field. People might be intrigued by the, the possibility that it could be useful. Uh, and in fact, it can be enormously useful if we can get the right kinds of peer environments surrounding us. We'll, we'll do the things that we wish we would do. Uh, we'll be less likely to do the things like smoking that we wish that we and our kids wouldn't do. So it's a completely unexploited set of opportunities for some reason. We've, we've never really taken into account uh, the fact that even though the social environment is itself a consequence of our own individual choices, of course, we ignore that. No smoker would say, I better not smoke. I might make others more likely to. But of course, the social environment is exactly uh, the aggregate result of our choices. And since it influences us so strongly, both for good and ill in in different cases, we have a, a huge interest in it. And, and it turns out that there are 
very simple ways, simple non-invasive policies we could adopt that would make us act as if we cared about our impact on the social environment. Yeah, that's uh, the really that's remarkable. Really about. That's a really remarkable thing is that people's behavior can be nudged, as it were, into a different channel by manipulating the external environment. And maybe if you you have some great examples like about smoking and obesity, and maybe if you give one of those examples, that would clarify how this process works. Sure. The the smoking example, I think, is, is the easiest and, and least controversial illustration of the basic point. Uh, and so I'd I do refer to it repeatedly in the book because if if you don't like some other example, uh, it's fairly easy to show that virtually all the examples are structurally the same as the smoking example. So, so your parent, you're worried your teenage daughter might start smoking. Uh, it doesn't help you to assess the risk of that happening to know that she's a science fiction buff or that she likes math or that she is a, a, a fan of the Den- Denver Broncos, none of that matters. What you really need to know is the percentage of her friends who smoke. Uh, it's a huge effect. If that percentage were to go, say, from 20 to 30, she'll be 25% more likely to either become or remain a smoker. Uh, it's a huge effect. And oh. Or vapor. What we know, <laughs> sorry? Or vapor, as vaping is currently very popular. Or, or vapor. Or the oh, si- oh, vaping is, is, is hugely contagious. Oh, you know, yeah. We, we don't have data to show the precise estimates. It's actually kind of complicated statistically to get a, uh, a causal estimate of, of what the effect is. But, but yeah, from all indications I've seen, it's even more contagious than, than cigarette smoking. But uh, what we did was we intervened in that case. We put taxes on cigarettes. It, it, it used to be you could buy a pack of camels for 25 cents in some parts of the country in 1950. Now in New York, it's $13. You can't smoke in restaurants and bars any longer. Most public buildings, even, even outdoor public spaces in many places. And the effect of that, uh, since we know that Smoking is one of the most addictive behaviors there is. I had a, a friend who was a heroin addict. He said uh, for him it was way easy, easier to quit heroin than it was to quit smoking. Yikes. Uh, we wouldn't have expected to see the 70% decline in smoking just from taxes and, and slight increases in inconvenience alone. What happened uh, was that some people didn't start because of the taxes, mainly young people for whom the taxes would have been more of a, a hurdle. Uh, a few were dissuaded or, or, or were uh, more likely to quit because of the inconvenience. The fact that people had fewer smokers in their circle meant that fewer new people were likely to start. Uh, the fact that they didn't start meant that others had fewer smokers in their circles. And so without invoking that contagion radiating outward, we just can't explain the huge, fast decline in the smoking rate. Uh, it's down to 13% now among U.S. adults. And, and nobody uh, thinks that the world was better when the smoking rate was 60%. Uh, if you're a parent, I've never heard a parent say, I, I hope my kids grow up to be smokers. Uh, you know, this is a hugely beneficial thing, even from the perspective of smokers themselves, uh, most of whom wish they'd never started. 
But we never explained cogently why we did this. We invoked uh, secondhand smoke. That was the reason we had to discourage smoking. But right, that seemed like such a, a weak argument. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's not it's not weak yeah, because it does just, affect people, but in terms of you know initiating the whole policy, it seemed like a weak argument. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a real effect. I'm I'm not challenging that point, but it's so small compared to the damage from actually being a smoker. Now you might say it's not the government's job to protect you from harming yourself. Uh, I think that that argument had greater force in John Stuart Mill's day than it does uh, given the behavioral science knowledge of the past decades. But but we could argue that point. But the real harm you cause, and I, I think here there are hapless victims with no recourse, it, it's that if you smoke, you make it harder for every parent to achieve the goal of raising his or her kids to be non-smokers. And, and that's real harm. I mean, why wouldn't we want to invoke that as a reason for intervening against smoking. Right. It's interesting to me that people have so much um, defensiveness around the so-called nanny state idea, that they don't want their harmful behaviors to be limited by regulation. Right. And and oftentimes the the regulation can be uh, with a fairly light touch. In in the case of smoking, uh, we taxed it heavily. Well, uh, there have been studies even showing that, that uh, smokers themselves are happier in jurisdictions that have higher taxes. Most of them want to quit. It's hard to quit. It's easier to quit if it's more expensive to smoke. So, so smokers liked the fact that they were taxed more heavily in many cases. But the fact that we taxed it meant that we got some revenue from that, and that enabled us to reduce taxes on other activities that are, are not only not harmful but are actually beneficial why should we raise tax revenue by taxing useful behaviors, which we we de- now do in a variety of cases? We tax payrolls, uh, which discourages firms from hiring new workers. Why on earth would we want to do that? Right. And then that leads us to the obvious corollary with climate change. If we tax this harmful process that is CO2 buildup in the atmosphere, then that gives us more money to pursue positive issues, as well as protecting the environment that we all live in. And you have some great ideas about how to explain those carbon taxes, because I think those are really unclear to a lot of people, and and they're very nervous about that kind of taxation. So maybe you could explain exactly how that would work as a, as a behavioral nudge, especially. Yes. Yeah. Good, good question. Uh, I, I think it's now uh, behavioral scientists are beginning to wake up to the fact that it's better to call it a carbon fee or a carbon charge uh, rather than a carbon tax, since people are so phobic in reacting to the term tax. Uh, most people accept the idea that if you cause harm to others it's or if you use up valuable resources, it's appropriate to put a charge on you for doing that and and using up the the atmosphere's capacity to absorb co2 is definitely using up valuable resources for for the planet why not charge you for doing that uh as economists have long known the fact that it's costly to use non-carbon methods uh to achieve our goals and the fact that we can spew carbon into the air for free is the is the very reason that we're facing a crisis now, uh, and so 
the the logical first step would have been a uh, hundred years ago to put a tax or a fee on carbon. Uh, when it's been tried, it's generated enormous pushback. People don't like taxes, as has been often noted. But I think it's it's political malpractice of a very high order, the fact that when people propose carbon taxes or fees, that they didn't propose making them revenue neutral. That's the technical term. We collect the revenue from these fees, uh, the, the carbon fee, is just uh, an extra fee you pay in proportion to the carbon footprint of whatever it is you're doing or buying. The revenue comes in. Most of the revenue comes from high-income consumers. They use disproportionately much of the total energy worldwide. Uh, the top 10% of the income distribution, <clears throat> distribution uses half of all, all energy. It's not that skewed in the U.S., but it's still very skewed. So most of the revenue is coming in from high-income people. You could send monthly rebate checks out uh, only to middle- and low-income families. They would get more back each month than they paid in that month in carbon taxes. They'd still have an incentive to use more carbon-friendly consumption habits. Uh, And and we would get uh, a huge windfall for for 90% of the population. The people at the top would end up paying more. That's true, but they're going to get the lion's share of the benefits from the environmental cleanup. So, so that's their on on their part as well. So, yeah, it's, it's something we should have done long ago. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. It's, it's not enough to do it now. We're, we we've used up most of our carbon budget for staying within any kind of lib, livable planet. So we've got to take that step plus many others. Absolutely. uh, That's one of the steps we need to take. Right. And unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. I will link to your book and um, your website in our show notes. And I appreciate your talking to us this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was Professor Bob Frank, a behavioral economist at Cornell University, talking about his recent book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. We will link to his book on the show notes and on the How on Earth website. For listeners who generously pledge $60 or more, KGNU will furnish you with a copy of this book. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer for the quarter is me, Beth Bennett, and I produced and engineered the show with additional contributions from Anjel Shang. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Inna. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and information on our authors. And you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ajel Shang. And I'm Beth Bennett. It's 9 o'clock straight up, and you are listening to KGNU 88.5 FM or 1390 AM in Boulder and Denver, or 98.7 FM in Fort Collins, and 93.7 FM in Netherland, Colorado, and online at any time at KGNU.org and afterfm.com. Stay tuned, as always, on Tuesday mornings for The Wit and Wisdom of Alan Watts.